Welcome. Uh, you came on a great day because we are launching into our fall season right now. And I know what you're thinking, like fall season, that's cool. So sweater weather, right? Well, yeah, in December, we'll get to that. Uh, but, uh, but fall season for us, uh, obviously we're still going to be hitting 100 degrees for the next three months. But part of that kickoff uh, is a new series that we're going to be walking through on Sunday mornings as well as Wednesday nights. And that's a series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. Um, and so we'll be teaching through the seven churches on Sunday mornings and then on Wednesday nights and, and in all of our small groups really, um, where most of them, uh, we are going to be doing an even deeper dive into those churches uh, the week after we preach about it. So this week we're talking about the church of Ephesus and so uh, on Wednesday night and other small groups who are working uh, through that, we'll also be learning about the, uh, the Church of Ephesus uh, this coming week as well. Um, but over the course of the last two years or so, uh, we've had a lot of different small groups walk through the, uh, the book of Revelation in their, in their studies. Um, and, and hear me, this is, a, this is a good thing to do. Studying the book of Revelation, it is a good thing to do. Revelation, it's obviously, it's a book of the Bible. It's the very last book of the Bible. It should be read. It should be studied. Uh, it should should be internalized because at the end of the day, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. And, and it doesn't say some scripture. It doesn't say all scripture uh, except Revelation. It doesn't say only the New Testament. It says all scripture. So everything inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, we should be, like, it is God-breathed and it is useful. So we should walk through and we should study Revelation. Um, and so uh, uh, out of those groups, I had a few conversations with different people kind of asking for clarity, uh, asking for, like, even asking, like, would you ever walk through a series uh, with our entire church and that sort of thing? And, and hear me, as somebody who grew up in the late 90s and the early 2000s, as a, a teenager in that, in that time, um, one of the first books of the Bible I ever read on my own was Revelation. Because there was a massive, successful uh, fiction revelation series that came out at the time. It was called the Left Behind series, right? Many of you, if you have been a Christian for a long amount of time, you probably read the Left Behind series. I actually remember when I was in high school. I started in 1999, graduated in 03. Um, we had sustained silent reading every single day for 20 minutes. And so I would have all of my books in my backpack, and then I'd have my Left Behind series in my backpack. Pack and man, second period, beginning of second period, crack open Left Behind series and see what Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins had to say about Nikolai Carpathia, right? Uh, that's a deep dive for you church, uh, church cultural people. Um, but it, this thing was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it exploded. It reached beyond just like Christian culture as a whole as well uh, because some of, some of the writing in the book of Revelation is really, really complicated and it can be hard for people to, to understand. There's a lot of symbolism going on in the book of Revelation, right? And so the authors of this series largely took this book that can be shrouded kind of in like mystery and what's going to happen and I want to know about end times and all this stuff. They took that and they wrote it in such a way that was very understandable for people to read. The issue then became is that was one specific theological understanding of the book of Revelation. And so then all of a sudden, these turn into theology books rather than what they were meant for was simply Christian um, entertainment. But, but here's the problem. 
when, when churches say that they are going to be doing a series in Revelation, right? Everyone gets really excited about a series in Revelation. I mean, as excited as you guys get about a new series that we're putting forth. I mean, you guys, I know you guys came in and were amped this morning uh, about, uh, about Revelation because, because the pastor's going to tell us how everything ends. The pastor's going to tell us how everything kind of comes to a close, how the world ends, Right? And then there's people in here who have like done deep dives into the study of Revelation. So you, you end time scholars get excited right? because you got a chance to talk about when they think the rapture is going to happen. If they think the rapture is going to happen. The four main views of Revelation get discussed you know, at, at, at just like ad, ad nauseum. And it's in a way that's just like exhausting that like where believers will put their flag in the sand and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a preterist or I'm an idealist or I'm a classical dispensational futurist or I'm, I'm a progressive dispensationalist. These are like these big words thrown around and then they're going to start talking about, well, I'm amillennial or postmillennial. I believe uh, in, in a literal thousand year reign of Christ or I don't believe in a literal thousand year reign of Christ. And like there's just all of these words and vocabulary and understanding all of this stuff. And by the time that we're done discussing all all of that, everyone is confused, no one is closer to Jesus, and the book of Revelation is no closer to being fully understood than it was when we started, right? That's, that's the issue with Revelation, is we just tend to take these little rabbit trails, right? And so there's this big thing like, you know, mark of the beast, right? And then everybody freaks out and like, well, what is the mark of the beast? Like, are they going to put a microchip in my, like, that's obviously the, 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 the new cultural phenomenon. It was like, that's clearly the mark of the beast or whatever. And, it, and so I want, I want you, like, I just want to start out by telling you what this series isn't going to be about. Because if you are someone in the church, if you're new to church, you've never studied Revelation, as I assume most of you haven't studied Revelation, throwing big words out like preterist and classical dispensationalist futurist don't help you. They don't help me largely. And I'm paid to know this stuff, right? Like, like it just gets confusing. So this is what this series isn't going to be about. Anything that I just said, we will not include in this series. Okay, so everything that I just talked about, the idea of a rapture, the idea of a thousand year reign, all of the symbolism, all that stuff, we'll hit some of, some of the symbolic uh, words and that sort of thing that we need to be able to understand. But the rest of it, like if you're hoping for me to tell you who like the Antichrist is and his name is Eli Musk or Vladimir Putin or wh whatever you hope for, like that's not, <laughs> that is not what this series is about. Okay, I just want to start by telling you all of those things. Here's what we will be talking about, though, okay? What we are going to be talking about is Jesus, and we're going to talk about Jesus' warnings to the church. So when we talk about the seven churches of the Re Revelation, largely what we're talking about is Revelation 1 through 3, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, because the rest of the book is important, the rest of the book is useful, but like I said, oftentimes we can kind of get lost in the weeds regarding its meaning and ascribe more meaning to things than we probably, probably should, and so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be studying these first few chapters of the book of Revelation. So the question we should have then for ourselves as we're talking through this series, this should be the same question that we ask anytime time we're walking through a series is, what does this piece of scripture tell us about God and what is it I should do in my life because of the text? Those are the two questions I always want you to be able to answer when you leave this place on a Sunday morning. What does the scripture say about God and how can I apply it to my life? 
Because everything that we read about God in Scripture should demand some kind of response from us or, or some kind of response from the Spirit kind of working in us and on our behalf. And whether we're talking about God's character, we're talking about the revelation of Jesus or otherwise, as we learn more about God, as we learn more about Jesus, as we learn more about the Holy Spirit, we want to be in tune with the commands of Scripture and the prompting of the Spirit. That's where we should always land when we're talking about the Bible, when we're talking about God. So that's what we're going to be doing for this series as well. Okay, so hear me. We are going to land in Revelation 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, whether physical or digital, you can go ahead and pull those out. Revelation 2. If you have a physical Bible and you end up in the index, you went too far. Okay, flip back a couple pages. We're going to land in Revelation 2. But like any series when we're talking through a book of the Bible, we got to pave quite a bit of runway this morning in order to get to the church of Ephesus and exactly what, what is going on there. So we're going to give you some, uh, some quick context. So outside of the confusing things that I already told you, here's what we need to know to get kind of cruising in Revelation. Okay, Revelation is most likely written by the Apostle John. I say most likely written by the Apostle John because he never says I, John, an apostle of Christ, like it is mentioned in other places. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, he mentions that in the New Testament, different things like that. John, back then, as it is today, very, very common name. He doesn't say, like, my name is John and then have his last name. He doesn't say Apostle of Christ or anything like that. But most scholars, the vast majority of scholars would agree that John the Apostle is the guy who, uh, who wrote the book of Revelation. Because he identified himself uh, or mentioned his name in Revelation 1.1. Talks about it in verse 4. Talks about it in verse 9. Talks about it again in chapter 22, verse 8. But he didn't mention that what his last name was. He did mention that he faithfully served Jesus. He had suffered for the kingdom of God. It seems clear this book is clearly written by a prophet, but these general details, they're, they're not really sufficient to demonstrate that the man who wrote the book of Revelation was the Apostle John. Okay, and that being said, we're going to operate on the assumption that it was the Apostle John. This shouldn't be a sticking point for us. But beyond that, according to Revelation 1.9, John, he wrote the book of Revelation while he was on this really small island called Patmos. So if you were to look at verse 9, it talks about that. Patmos is a small island off in the Aegean Sea. It was kind of 40 miles southwest of Ephesus. And so what you need to know about Patmos, it's really rocky, it's really barren, it's super devoid of trees. There's hardly anything there. And so its unpleasantness really made it a perfect location to punish popular people who were perceived as threats to kind of civil order in the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is like, you're a threat to us. You get to go live on Patmos by yourself, devoid of life, devoid of anything, anything good. And so Revelation 1.9 strongly implies that John had been exiled there uh, by Rome. And so John, he's enduring these kind of harsh conditions. And as he's enduring these harsh conditions, um, he has several visions from Christ. And the book of Revelation is John's record and John's commentary on these visions. So if you have your physical Bible or a digital one, whatever, and you see red letters in Revelation... That might strike you as odd. Okay, if you're new to church, red letters in a Bible mean those are the words of Jesus. 
And so for the most part, we've seen those red letters end in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. You see them all throughout the Gospels. You see them in Acts. And then it takes a break from any of Jesus's literal words for a while as Paul is writing to a whole bunch of these different churches. So as Paul uh, is writing to the church in Thessalonica, writing to the church in Ephesus, right, like the church in Corinth, these are Paul's words that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, Right. Now, all of a sudden, we see all of these red letters show up in the book of Revelation, which means these are Jesus's literal words to John as he is writing these, uh, writing these things down. So all that to be said, we're going to start for just a second, and we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. This one's not going to be on the screen. Chapter 2 will get on the screen. But this is what John says in verses 10 and 11. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. That seems kind of confusing, right? The, the idea of being in the spirit sounds like very mystical. How is Revit, like is he sitting there in a trance? Like what is happening? This, this verbiage is used consistently throughout the Old Testament as just a way of saying that John is in step with the Holy Spirit at this point. So oftentimes it's used when somebody is praying. Sometimes it's talking about the idea of baptism, right? Other times it's talking about the idea of simply loving other people well or loving other people in the spirit by the prompting of the spirit. That's all this is saying. He's not sitting there in a trance, okay? He is simply in the spirit. So he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, red letters, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. First of all, I really want to just pat myself on the back for pronouncing all of those churches correctly. So if you're like, what? I thought it was Laodicea. You guys all nailed Philadelphia though. So well done uh, on that. So John's hanging out, right? And John says he's, he's, in the, he's in the spirit and then he hears this voice tell him to go and write on a scroll and send it to the seven churches, okay? A few more things that we need to understand. There are far more than seven churches at this point. There's not just only seven churches because remember, churches aren't just a physical building back then. Oftentimes when they say, I'm going to write to the seven churches, they would literally just put an address to 9125 13 and a half Avenue if they were going to send a literal letter to the church of First Baptist Hanford. We would get the letter, I would read it to you all, we'd all talk about it, and then we would pass it on, right, to whatever church was supposed to be next. Okay, that's not the case here. Remember, as we're talking about these different churches, the church, the church was literally a body, a group of people who believed in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And so because of that, he, John is writing these letters. He said, hey, take this to the church of Ephesus. That's everybody, all of the believers in the church of Ephesus. So it could have been numerous households as the church of Ephesus that it would need to circulate to before then he passes it on. So these seven churches, they're in a place that we would call Asia Minor. Okay? Asia Minor is essentially where modern-day Turkey is. That's where these seven churches are going to be. And these are seven very real, very historical, very local churches. And so if you could see these churches on a map, largely they would kind of make like a, like a horseshoe shape in the order that the churches are addressed in chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
John is writing from the island of Patmos, and so from to the east, the closest to the east, I did, I, yeah, I messed that up. To the east, the closest church to him is a church that we call Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, it would go to Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, and it ends with Laodicea. So it kind of makes this horseshoe shape. So as he's writing, he is not writing in such a way of like importance or anything like that. He's writing just in order that the church, that this letter is going to be passed to the different churches. It's a perfect, almost perfect horseshoe. And so this letter was largely meant to be circulated along this kind of loop. And it was supposed to be sent to all of these churches. But we also recognize it's the inspired word of God. This is included in the historical canon of scripture. Okay, and so because of that, that means that this letter was not only meant for these seven churches, this is also meant for believers and churches today. That's why it is included in the book of Revelation. That's why it's included in your Bible. So all that, all that to be said, um, when we hear this idea of like these churches are supposed to, uh, every church is supposed to learn from, from this, learn from Paul's letters. We're meant to learn from what John says to each each of these seven churches, and I say learn, but what I actually want us to think about as we are walking through this series is not necessarily learn, but see. There is very, very strange, but also very descriptive language used here. A lot of symbolic type of language used here. And so if you were to imagine John as he's kind of like spread out the cultural reality that we see, the world in which we see, the, the places you go to work, the houses that you live in, your families, all that stuff. And we can see that. Largely what Revelation is doing is John just kind of taking this corner and peeling back what we, so we can see the page underneath what we don't see. That we see this spiritual realm, the things that are happening behind the scenes that we don't always necessarily get to see. The things that we aren't, we aren't necessarily privy to. And that's what John is going to start, to start talking, talking about and talking through. And so as we get into this text, I just want you to glance at chapter 1, verse 12, if you have your Bibles. This isn't on the screen either. We're almost there. I promise. We're painting context and then we're going to get to church, okay? Classroom first, church second, okay? And so... In verses 12 through 16, he, right, he hears this voice in 10 and 11, and then he turns and he sees Jesus. He sees the Lord. He sees the Savior of the world. And remember, John, he's an apostle of Jesus, which means he spent a lot of time with Jesus. He hung out with him a lot. He was the disciple that we see in John's gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved is what we talk about. So this is one of his best friends, his buddies. And beyond that, he thought his best friend died, right? He did die, was raised again three days later. He's like, Jesus, what's up? We get to hang out again. He's excited about it. And then Jesus, he cruises. He ascends. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And John, at that point, just assumes... I'm never going to see Jesus again until I get to heaven, as any sane person would, right? But then all of a sudden, what happens? He sees Jesus again. Now, if I haven't seen my best friend in a really long time, what am I going to do? I'm going to run up and I'm going to give that dude a hug. I'm probably going to make a joke, some inside joke that the two of us share, ask how his family is, be really, really excited to see him. That's not what happens here. Okay? John here is completely and totally terrified of what he sees, Okay, he sees the Lord in such a way as not just a savior, not just the one who hung on the cross and then was raised again. He sees Jesus here as a warrior. He sees him as the Lord of the entire world. And so because of that, he is absolutely terrified. So all that to be said, 
We've painted the road. We understand what's happening. We'll get to now to Ephesians chapter 2, and we are going to start in verse 1. We're going to conclude at 7. It'll be on the screen for you. This is what it says. To the angel of the Lord, or excuse me, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. You guys are already confused, right? You're like, hold up. What is, what is happening here with the stars and what is happening here uh, with, the, with the, the lampstands and w- w- even this idea of like we're writing to the angel of the church, not just necessarily the church. So a couple things just to break down verse 1 very quickly for you, okay? Angel of the church, most scholars would agree that we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're just talking about the Spirit, like the people of the church. Angels, you know, they don't necessarily have, we have a guardian angel of this church or anything like that. He's writing to the spirit, the people of of that church, okay? Talking about seven stars in his right hand. He's talking about those those angels and the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands are uh, symbolic for the churches themselves. We'll get into that a little bit deeper, okay? Verse 2. This is Jesus talking. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. That's terrifying. Anytime Jesus is like, hold up, but I hold this against you. I never want to be on the wrong side of what Jesus says, especially if he's holding something against me. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the, practice, the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A lot of things going on there, and we're going to unpack it for you right now. So specifically, though, what I want you to see and what I want you to recognize is that every single church is going to follow a pattern. Jesus is going to follow a pattern as he's talking through each church. Okay, so the first step in the pattern is there is a specific church address. So if you look in verse 1, the specific church address is the church of Ephesians, right? The second thing is that there is going to be a description of Jesus, Okay, so again, this is going to be true for all seven churches. There's going to be a description of Jesus. The third thing is Jesus commends the church. The fourth thing is Jesus rebukes the church. So think about any time that like you are trying to teach somebody something and they do something wrong, like a good coach or a good parent will do that like good, bad, good sandwich. Like, hey, you did really great at this. You need to work on this. But also you're awesome, right? Where they got hit by a hammer, but there's a pillow on both sides so it doesn't hurt as bad, right? That's exactly what is happening here is you're doing this great. You're terrible at this. Here's a solution and here's a promise. And so the next thing, he'll rebuke the church. He'll give a solution to the rebuke, and then Jesus is going to give a high-stakes warning. There, here, This is going to be an issue if you don't do what I tell you to do, and then the last step in the process is Jesus makes a promise to those people who conquer, those people who do, in fact, do what he asks them to do. So this is how that goes for Ephesus, right? So Ephesus, chapter 1, or verse 1, rather, the specific church is addressed. 
So Jesus is talking to this church in Ephesus, and this is the Ephesus that you know from elsewhere in the New Testament. Ephesus is one of the most famous cities in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul spends a whole lot of time there. We see that in the book of Acts on a regular basis. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. That's the book of Ephesians. Okay, so if you read the book of Ephesians, you'll get a little bit more about the context of Ephesus. And beyond that, this is actually where Timothy was living when Paul wrote the books of first, the letters rather of first and second Timothy to him. So we are very, very familiar with uh, with Ephesus. And then later on, actually, tradition says that Ephesus is where the Apostle Paul served most often, which would make sense because that that island of Patmos where he's living, forty miles away from Ephesus, right? So. So that's the first part. He's addressing Ephesus. The second part then is Jesus describes himself, right? This is the pattern. So verse 1, Jesus describes himself. He says, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus saying, I'm sovereign. I'm above everything. Like, like I am not just the savior of the world. I'm not just your golden ticket into heaven. I am the Lord of your life. I am the Lord of the, the entire world. This is his supremacy, in chapter 1, it's in, in verse 20, and Jesus tells us that the seven stars, the seven angels of, of each church, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? So, so for Jesus to hold these the stars in his right hand and then to walk among the lampstands shows us that Jesus is not only sovereign, but shows us that Jesus is present as well. It doesn't say he's walking above the church. It says he's walking among the seven lampstands. Right? So he's present. He's here. And beyond that, he also holds the angels in his right hand. It's a big deal. That's a big guy. That's a big, a big God. So he's sovereign. He's present. He's in control. He's close. Right? So he names the church. After that, he describes himself. And then third, he's going to commend the church in Ephesus. He's going to say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. He's doing a great job in something very, very specific. So Ephesus is virtue. That was a hard word to say. Ephesus's virtue has to do with how alert they are. Verse 2, it says, I know your works. Right? He talks about, I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know, I know what you guys are doing. This church is intolerant of evil. And so this church is testing. They're discerning. They're like, hey, that's a false teacher. They shouldn't be around here. Let's kick that guy out. In verse 6, Jesus even says the church shares his hatred for the work of the Nicolaitans. And so anytime that Jesus hates something, we want to hate that same thing, right? Anytime Jesus loves something, we want to love that same thing. And so Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to commend you on this. I'm going to commend you on working really, really hard to make sure that, like, like, that there is just like this grittiness here. That you care deeply about this idea of, like, like of doctrine. Like they patiently endure. They bear up for Jesus on a regular basis. They're strong in their faith. They don't grow weary. And personally, like when I read this, I'm like, heck yeah, man. Like let's go Church of Ephesus. You guys are killing it right now. Your doctrine is strong. Like you're inflappable. You're, you, like you, you refuse to have false teachers come in. Like happens so often in the early church. And they are just absolutely crushing it. And so Jesus commends the alertness of that church. But what happens after the compliment? The rebuke, right? And so verse 4, we then have a rebuke. It says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had. Like, what does that mean? 
right? And I, I don't think divorce was necessarily an issue in Ephesus or else Jesus probably would have talked about that. Like, I obviously haven't lost my, like, what does first love mean? Is he talking about love for one another, talking about love for him? Like, what is that, what kind of love does he mean? I think the best explanation that, that this is loss of love for Jesus expressed in the church's lack of witness of Jesus in the outside world. That was kind of a convoluted way of saying it. Let me see if I could flesh it out for you. The church is really good at doctrinal purity. Church is really good at holding the line when it comes to theology and doctrine and understanding of God. They're really, really, really good at that. They're good at keeping their own house in order, but they have forgotten their calling to be a light in the world around them. That's the issue. And most time, churches don't even mean to do this. Right, churches do this all the time, even today. There's an echo of this same thing that Jesus is talking about, this warning that we see in Matthew chapter 24. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is kind of talking about end times, what's going to happen. Um, and he says that, that the love of many will grow cold. And then he exhorts believers to continue to endure. And then he says, like, the, this gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this gospel will be a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You guys have heard that, maybe not written that way, though. A lot of, a lot of Christians have heard this idea that, that there, are, there are just, I mean, institutes who do their best to translate the Bible, translate the gospel specifically into every single language on earth. Because what Jesus is saying here is until people hear the gospel in their own tongue, until every nation, every people group hears the gospel in their own tongue, Jesus isn't going to come back yet. So there's like whole programs that are set up to be like, hey, there's eight people who speak this language. We need to get the gospel translated into this language. And this is really, really difficult work. And so Jesus puts endurance and he puts witness in contrast with loss, uh, in contrast to the loss of love. Right? It's the same connection here in Revelation 2. So most scholars actually believe that this is most likely why we see this image of a lampstand. Okay, we don't just see the image of a lampstand here. It's in Revelation 11. It's in Revelation, uh, uh, Revelation 11, specifically verses 3 to 7 and 10. This is used regularly. But most people believe they use this because you have heard that idea of a lampstand. You've heard that idea of a church being a light to the world, right? A lamp specifically to the world. The church is supposed to be a city on a hill, a light for the world to be able to see. That's Matthew 24, 13 to 16. And yeah, we need to embrace sound doctrine. We pride ourselves here of embracing sound doctrine and not deviating from this idea of, of sound doctrine. But, but that's, for the, like, that's for the purpose of making Jesus known out there. So often what happens is we just like get this idea that like I'm not going to budge. I'm going to put my head down in my Bible and I'm not going to look up for my Bible until like my eyes are watering and I can't see anymore. And so then I'll put my Bible away and I'm just going to like our doctrine is sound. Our doctrine is secure. And there's almost this circling of the wagons type moment that happens at churches that we're like, you know what? We believe this. If you don't, there's the exit. And we would never articulate it because we're a bunch of very nice Christians, we would never say that. Most churches, no churches, I don't I mean, maybe a handful of churches would say that. But we wouldn't say that. 
But what happens is, is we get so focused on what it is that we believe and what we don't believe that we forget that the whole reason that we believe in the first place and we study in the first place isn't just for our own, isn't just for our own knowledge. It's not just for our own edification. It's for us to be able to take what we know out into a world that doesn't yet know about it. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling this church in Ephesians here. And so fifth then, the solution is to repent. That's the solution that Jesus gives in the order of things that happen in all seven verses. The solution then is to repent. Repent. He's saying that is sinful. Not that sound doctrine is bad. Not that sound doctrine is sinful. Not that understanding more about Jesus is bad or sinful. But only caring about doctrine and not caring about witnessing, that's the issue. That's the issue that we have. And so in verse 5, his solution is to repent. He says essentially like, hey, remember, remember from where you have fallen. You need to repent and you need to do the works that you did at first. I love the solution that Jesus gives here. It's one that we should, we should take to heart. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, you need to repent you need to read a book a little bit more about how to witness to the world. You need to go to a class about how to share your faith. You need to pray a little bit about it first. No, Jesus says repent and change. Stop doing what you're doing and go do that. We love to like put steps in place. It's like, well, hold on, I just don't know enough. I don't know if my theology is accurate enough. And that's how you fall into that trap in the first place. of like, no, my doctrine is good. Good, then go tell people about your doctrine. That's what Jesus is, is telling here, telling them here. And Jesus gives that solution because this is indeed a possible solution. We just have to get out of our own ways and allow ourselves and allow the Spirit to prompt us to be able to have conversations with people who are incredibly thirsty for Jesus, incredibly thirsty for a good, the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus gives that solution. We can do that too. And then so the next thing is, Jesus is going to give a very high stakes warning here to the church in Ephesus. He says that we do that because if we don't do that, if we don't repent and change, if we don't stop only caring about doctrine and not caring about witnessing, Jesus says he is going to remove the lampstand. Okay. So let's go back to what the lampstand means. Okay, what's the lampstand symbolically speaking? Jesus is talking about the church. Jesus says, hey, church, if you don't change, church of Ephesus, if you don't change your ways, I'm just going to snuff you out. I'm just going to take that lamp away. I'll go give it somewhere else. We have, we have this idea in our head that Jesus needs us for something. That's a very, very shallow view of who Jesus is. Right? God is without need. Jesus is without need. The Spirit is, is without need. We have been privileged and blessed to be able to partner with them in the work of the gospel. So he's giving a reminder to the church at Ephesus and every local church that there has ever been that Jesus doesn't actually need you. Right? This isn't like, like when we talk about the idea of church, like, I am not the head of the church. The church does not need Pastor Peter and able to move on. The church doesn't need Pastor Jeff. It doesn't need the Bryans, Pastor Bryans. It's the plural way to say their name. 
The church doesn't need the pastor, it doesn't need our executive board, it doesn't need our deacons, it doesn't need our volunteers, it doesn't need any of that to thrive. It's the very reason that FBH has been around for almost 130 years. There is not the same senior pastor here that was here then that is here now. Senior pastors change, and man, if I was, I hope that someone would just deliver me to the Lord quickly, right? It's not the same. We don't have the same executive board. We don't have the same deacons. We don't even have the same bylaws that we started with. Our statement of faith has largely remained unchanged. We changed. We added some stuff about marriage at one point to make sure that we were doctrinally aligned with where we should be going. But outside of that, this church exists. All churches exist because Jesus said that church should exist. And I am going to bless that church and I'm going to take away from that church. It's his call, not ours. Do we get to partner with him in that? Yeah. Do we get to put forth excellence as we walk through church and do our best to bring more people into the fold? Yeah, absolutely. That's the partnership that we're talking about. But make no mistake, Jesus doesn't need us. Jesus can do whatever he wants. And if he thinks that what we are doing here is not good, he can just remove the lampstand and call it good. Jesus does not need us. So he's giving that Reminder, he's not desperate for you, just like he's not desperate for anything. Right? I mean, the way that he's described early in chapter one, just the idea that Jesus' eyes are like flames of a fire, like, yeah, he can kind of do what he wants. So listen then, then it goes on, it talks about what, what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Jesus, he's got, he's got something to say at this point. He says, then, to the people who conquer, to the conquerors, I will grant you the ability to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. More like of that language that we're like, what is he talking about? Where's the paradise of God? I've heard of this idea of the, the tree of knowledge. Right? Where have I heard that before? Yeah, Genesis, it talks about this, this tree of knowledge. Remember Adam and Eve, they're cruising along, they're hanging out in the Garden of Eden and they haven't, or, or God tells them, hey, don't eat of anything, or you can eat of everything, but don't eat of that one tree. Adam and Eve do whatever they want to do and now I'm going to have to have a stern conversation with them when I get to heaven because they messed everything up, right? But now Jesus is like, hey, if you conquer... If you do this, if you do what I've asked you to do, if you embrace sound doctrine, you embrace witness, you do these things at the same time, you hold on to that tension where we have sound doctrine and we have witness over here and we as a church stay right here. If you do that, man, you're conquerors and you are going to be ushered into the paradise of God where the tree of knowledge is sitting and, and waiting for you. The cool thing is the idea of conquerors. Who, like, who are the conquerors? It's you. It's you, church. It's me, right? It's us as a collective who endure through faith, who endure, endure in faith rather through tribulation, through hardship. Like Jesus gives you this promise. You will be with him forever. That's what Jesus says to Ephesus. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus because of their doctrinal alertness, he rebukes them over their loss of love for Jesus and witnessing. We can assume there's some connection between the two. The churches who are serious about sound doctrine oftentimes are the same, same churches who are poor in evangelism. And so we're like, we, we understand everything that we're supposed to believe right here. And we're not going to tell anybody about it. And at the same time, churches who really, really care deeply about evangelism tend to have a shifting doctrine 
And so this idea that you can either be really good at witnessing or you can be really, really good at having sound doctrine. And like, are we at FBH going to be about sound doctrine or are we going to be about making Jesus known? And the answer just simply needs to be yes. The answer is yes. We are going to be good at sound doctrine and we're going to be good at telling people about Jesus. I refuse to choose between the two. Why? Because Jesus said do both. He said, be good at both. Study your Bible and share the gospel with your coworker. Right? Read your, your theology book with your small group and tell your unbelieving, uh, unbelieving neighbor what it is that Jesus has done in your life. Do both. The solution for the church at Ephesus was not to stop being so doc, like doctrinal in order to let their light shine. It was simply to let their light shine and to make Jesus famous. Bo- like both of these things have to happen together. They have to happen in conjunction. Right? Jesus knows everything about FBH. Jesus knows everything about South Valley. He knows everything about Koinonia. Like every church, Jesus knows everything about, just like the church in Ephesus. He sees and knows everything about us, and he's got thoughts about us too, which is a little concerning. But he's got thoughts about us, and we don't know precisely what they are. The very fact that we know like we know that Jesus knows us, that he cares about us, that he sees us, and he has thought like that alone should humble us immensely. That we should be humbled by the fact that the Savior of the world knows us and should humble us like nothing else can. He knows if we're missing something. He knows if we're not doing our best. He knows if our best isn't good enough. Like, do you think he knows if we're tired Think he knows what, what our fears are? Does he know if we're going to make it as a church? Yeah, he knows. Revelation tells us that he knows. And so the question is, is what, what do we do with that? Because Revelation, man, it's, it's sticky. And you can get caught up here and like number of the beast and like all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, there are some very real application points for the church here. So what do we do with the fact that the Savior and Lord of the entire world knows about us. We fall at his feet and we worship the one true living God of the universe who made himself known through his son and through his word, humbled, wrecked. And after we're humbled before him, Jesus puts his hands on us, his nail-scarred hands, because he loves us and he's freed us from our sin by his blood. And that may seem like Christianese to some of you maybe who are newer, newer to church, but the entire reason we do anything here at FBH is because we believe that Jesus came to earth as a sacrifice for our sins. And he was raised up and he was ascended to the right hand of God. We also believe that Jesus is coming back at some point. So not only did did the one who never sinned take the guilt of all of our sins for us, he now is supposed to be the Lord of our lives for all of us who believe. And so the reason that we both deepen our understanding of Christ and widen his popularity by sharing with others is not just to grow like our little FBH kingdom. Like we do it because we want everyone to come to know and realize the saving faith in Jesus. We don't do it for our kingdom, we do it for his It's why we worship, it's how we live, it's why we study, it's why we receive communion on the first weekend of every month. 
And so I'm going to invite the band to come out, and we're going to do communion in just a second, but I want you to keep track with me. If you didn't receive communion elements on your way, and you can just raise your hand, we'll have some members of our diaconate get you some. But while you're doing that, as a reminder to, to all of us, right, at, at FBH, we believe in, in what's called an open table. An open table means you don't have to be a member of our church in order to partake in communion, but, but we do expect that you have acknowledged Jesus as Lord of your life, that you have accepted him as Savior of the world. And so in the same way that there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation, there's the idea of the lampstands, the idea of the stars. I mean, later on, there's, there's dragons. There's, I mean, it's tons of crazy stuff. But in the same way, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Jesus and his buddies, they get together for one last meal. And Jesus does something incredibly symbolic in that time. Is there's bread sitting there in the upper room. There's wine sitting there in the upper room. And the disciples don't know exactly what's about to go down. They have no clue that Jesus is about to be, I mean, he told them, but they have no clue that he's about to get nailed to a cross, he's about to die, and he's gonna conquer death. They don't know what's about to go down. And so Jesus says, hey, I want you to do this. Anytime you do this, I want you to remember me. And Jesus isn't saying, I just want you to remember this one point in time, like when we had a meal together. And he's not even just saying, I just want you to remember this one point in time when I'm gonna go to the cross and become the savior of the world. We are remembering Jesus, not just for the depth of what he did, but for the breadth of what he did as well. That it wasn't just a, a savior mentality, golden ticket into heaven, that as long as I call on the name of Jesus, I get to go to heaven one day and be with all of my loved ones. That's the savior portion, and we should remember that consistently because we aren't worthy. Okay, but beyond the savior portion of that, there's a lordship portion that we need to hold on to. There's a lordship portion that we need to consistently remember who Jesus is as well. There is a Jesus is coming portion that the book of Revelation points out to us. The book of Revelation is telling the churches there's still work to do. And so as there's still work to do in the community, there's also still work to do in your lives as well. Which means don't just care about doctrine. Go tell people about who Jesus is because it's the best news that's ever been delivered in the face of the, the history of the world. And so when he talks about this idea of this do in remembrance of me, yeah, remember that he went to the cross for you, that he's dying for your sins, that all of the guilt and the shame and all of the different things that Jesus never should have had to endure, he took upon himself so we, didn't, so we could have eternal life. But beyond that, we get to wake up every day and choose to follow Jesus in a very, very real way by making him Lord of our lives, by deepening our doctrine, and by making sure that everybody that we come into contact with, everybody that we know has the opportunity to know the same living God that we get to worship every single day and that we will get to worship for eternity. So that being said, this is what, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray in just a second. And when we pray, I think there's two groups of people that we need to kind of have a conversation with right now. I think the first group of people is maybe you're new to church or maybe you've been going to church for a while and you just kind of been towing the line a little bit. You're like, hey, there's free donuts and average coffee. And so because of that, yeah, I'll keep coming to church. The worship is cool. 
and you've never really made that profession of faith of acknowledging Jesus as Lord of your life, if that's you today, can I invite you into the family of God? Can you make that profession of faith today so you can receive communion with us and we can just celebrate that, that you have accepted the best news ever? But beyond that, there's another group in here and the second group of people largely are those people, oftentimes like me, but those believers who have been in here for a really long period of time who consistently live and die on, on the, the table of doctrine. That my doctrine's good and this is what I believe, which is great. Don't change your doctrine. Use your doctrine to help change the world. And I think we forget that. And so today I would ask you to respond in the same way. That I would ask you to repent of that sin, what Jesus calls a sin here in the book of Revelation, only caring about doctrine and not witness, and change, because that was his solution in the first place. So we're going to pray. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond. The band is going to sing after that. I'll come back. We'll receive communion together, and we'll finish up the song, and then we'll get out of here. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your son. Thank you for his words in Revelation, for the red letters in Revelation and his warning to the churches, his encouragement to the churches. And God, I just pray this morning that, that, that we at FBH would be about both. We would be about both sound doctrine and making your name known. And that corporate decision is also a very, very personal one for each and every one of us. And so for those of us in the room this morning who just need to, to get out of our own way and allow your spirit to prompt us to talk to other people about who need to know you, that we would just simply do that. Like you command the Ephesians to do. But beyond that, Father, to the group in the room who maybe have not yet said yes to you or need to get right with God, if that's you this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I would just ask you to just make a profession of faith with me this morning, that you could simply repeat the words that I am about to say. We call them the ABCs. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I have fallen short of your word or fallen short of, uh, of your expectation. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me that he took the nails, he died and is sitting at your right hand now and Lord see that I would choose to follow you forever and that I would do the work that needs to be done in order to make your name known. We love you Father, it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.